This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Right, well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to our seminar on the book, The Great Controversy. I know that I was blessed by listening to Brother Hyman's presentation in part two of the series. I did part one, and this is now part three, and then Brian's going to be doing part four this afternoon. And then I guess we have a seminar tomorrow morning and then Sabbath afternoon. So um, today is a really big day, and then we will wrap it up on Friday and Sabbath. So come on in, have a seat, and we will go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for bringing us here this afternoon. We thank you for what you're doing here at GYC. We thank you for the seminars. I pray that you would bless every single seminar presented this moment. We thank you for the testimony we heard this morning as well. And I just pray that you would be with me in a special way now as we get into a very important section of the book on the Great Controversy about Adventism's prophetic message in the Great Controversy. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I didn't introduce myself when I started this morning, so I will do that now. My name is Norman McNulty, and I practice neurology in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, which is about an hour and a half south of Nashville, and it's about three hours west of Chattanooga and Southern and all of that. And I grew up in Middle Tennessee, so I've come back home after having been in Loma Linda, California for 10 years and Trinidad for two years, and now I'm back in middle Tennessee and we have a nice place out in the country to raise a family and to do some gardening and things of that nature so we're blessed in that respect and of course I love getting out and sharing the message for our time and I believe that God has given us a special message for this time and um, I'm excited about the message for this afternoon Adventism's prophetic message in the great controversy and I just want to start off by saying that I am proud to be a Seventh-day Adventist. And I am thankful for the message that God has given to his last day church. You know, now is not the time for God's people to become ashamed of the prophetic message that he has given to his last day church. We have been raised up for a specific purpose to give a specific message, the three angels' messages, to a lost and dying world. That's why we exist here on this earth. Now is not the time for us to try to be dumbing down our message, trying to fit in with the churches of Babylon. We're supposed to be calling people out, not going in. And so when we look at the message this afternoon, Adventism's prophetic message in the Great Controversy, you are going to find that throughout the book, The Great Controversy, the message in this book is leading you to the climax, so to speak, of the rise of the Great Advent movement and how it's going to reach its climax with a loud cry under the power of the latter rain that will warn the whole world. That's the work that God has given us to do in these last days. And so, as we start this message, you know, what we've seen so far, we saw the big picture overview, and then Brother Hyman showed us the faithfulness of the Waldenses, and then how the Protestant reformers brought people back to God's word during the Dark Ages. But we have to realize that 
Adventism came onto the scene of Earth's history after 1,260 years of papal supremacy. Now, you know, sometimes we just pass that over pretty quickly and say, yeah, the 1,260 years, but 1,260 years. Now, real quick, th there's a little bit of feedback. Do you know that's... Okay, um, so this 1,260 years of papal supremacy, have you ever wondered why God allowed the papacy to persecute the saints for 1,260 years? I mean, did God just say, okay, whatever, I mean, I died on the cross, and... Um, once I feel like it, then, you know, we can have 1844, and I'll just randomly pick 1844, and then, you know, there will be 1260 years that the papacy can rule. I mean, why did God allow the papacy to last for that long? Have you ever wondered that? And, you know, you look at, at the history, here you have um, Justinian. He was the Roman emperor who gave um, political power to the Bishop of Rome in 538. And 1,260 years later, of course, there's the deadly wound, Berthier, um, Pius VI captive. It's interesting that France in 508 even um, gave um, power to the papacy. Clovis of the Franks gave the papacy power. And then all the way in 1798, it was France that gave the deadly wound. But it's interesting there was something very important that happened at the end of the 1260 years, prophetically speaking. And I'm not talking about the deadly wound. We know about the deadly wound. We know about Berthier coming in to the Vatican and taking Pope Pius VI captive and the Pope dies in captivity. Yes, we understand that. But what other key element of Bible prophecy happened at the end of the 1260 years? Okay, let's try this. Is that, is that all right? Okay. So what, what was the other prophecy that was fulfilled at the end of the 1260 years, towards the end of the 1260 years? You know, the 1260-year prophecy shows up in Daniel 7.25, then you see it again in Daniel chapter 12. Then when you come to Revelation, the first time the 1260 years is mentioned for the first time in Revelation chapter 11 verses 2 and 3, and then you should see it again. And then Re Revelation chapter 12, it's there. Revelation 13, it's there. The 1260-year prophecy is mentioned repeatedly in Daniel and Revelation, so it's clearly an important prophecy. And in Revelation chapter 11, which is the first chapter in the book of Revelation where this prophecy is mentioned, there's another time prophecy in Revelation chapter 11. Do you remember what that is? the three and a half days of a beast that comes up from the abyss that's spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. What are we talking about? The French Revolution. You remember that? Now, if you see this slide here, this is in French, and I don't speak French, but what you can see here is it's talking about indivisible unity of the French Republic, which is liberty equality and fraternity those three principles liberty equality and fraternity and the french revolution 
worshipped the goddess of reason for the three and a half years from the fall of 1793 to the spring of 1797. And this was a direct fulfillment of Bible prophecy of Revelation chapter 11, that at the end of the 1260 years, there would come up a beast out of the abyss, so to speak, that would make war against the Bible. This would be the power of atheism that came up out of France. Now, why did the French Revolution happen? Have you ever wondered that? Because, you know, I grew up in the church, and I remember hearing my pastor preach about the French Revolution from Revelation 11, and I read about it in the Great Controversy, because I had read through the Great Controversy by the time I was in fifth grade, so I knew about this. But as I started studying when I got older, I'm like, okay, what is the significance of the French Revolution prophetically? Because there's been lots of revolutions throughout the scope of history, but this revolution is significant prophetically, and here's the significance. The French Revolution was a reaction to the 1260 years of papal suppression. It was in France where papacy received its birth. That's in Daniel 11:31. Arms shall stand on his part. They shall make the abomination that, or place the abomination that maketh desolate. This is Clovis giving military power to the papacy. And it was in France throughout the 1290 to 1260 years of Bible prophecy that the Bible and the principles of the Reformation were suppressed whenever the Reformation tried to rise up in France. France, through the assistance of the papacy, was always there to, to push it out. You had the St. Bartholomew's Massacre and all sorts of terrible things. And so France never accepted the Protestant Reformation. And so what happened, by the end of the 1260 years, the French came to the point where they said, if this is who God is, we don't want to have anything to do with him. We will become atheists. What was their picture of God? Their picture of God was that if you don't do what the church says, you'll be destroyed just like that. You'll be a heretic and you'll be taken to the stake. We'll burn you. We'll chop your head off at the guillotine. And so the French said, hey, let's just take the church clergy and do the same thing to them. And let's burn the Bibles in the street. And so here's what happens. Revelation chapter 13, speaking of the papacy, it says the dragon gave his power, his seat, and authority to the beast. And so Satan ruled through the papacy for 1260 years. And what the French Revolution is a demonstration of, it was a demonstration of what happens is if Satan is given full control. That's why the papacy ruled for 1260 years, because it took that long for the principles of Satan's government to become manifest. Yes, they did all these horrible, awful things, perse er, persecuting and destroying so-called heretics, which was the faithful Christian church in the wilderness for the 1260 years. But finally, at the end of the 1260 years, the full maturity, the full maturation of the principles of Satan's government became fully seen through the French Revolution. And what were those principles? Anarchy, godlessness, licentiousness, debauchery, do as you will. It was a complete mess. That was the French Revolution. When Satan is in charge, this is what happens. And, you know, incidentally, it's interesting. Jesus, and you've probably heard this before, but Jesus, his ministry was three and a half literal years. At the end of those three and a half literal years, he died on the cross. In other words, he suffered a deadly wound, but then he was resurrected. 
the papacy, who received its power, seat, and authority from Satan, the dragon, ruled for three and a half prophetic years. At the end of those three and a half prophetic years, they received a deadly wound. But Revelation chapter 17 teaches us that the papacy is going to have a resurrection. And Revelation 13 does as well, that its deadly wound will be healed. And so I say all of that to set the stage for the rise of the Advent movement. And by the way, when you look at this prophetically, of course, um, there's a whole chapter in the great controversy about the French Revolution. It's entitled The Bible and the French Revolution. So Ellen White saw this as a significant event. This is pages 265 to 288 of The Great Controversy. And on page 269, she says, the prophecy of Revelation 11 has received a most exact and striking fulfillment in the history of France. And again, I mentioned that the principles of the French Revolution were liberty, equality, and fraternity. It was this atheistic beast that came up from the abyss. Now here's the interesting thing. Satan was behind the rise of the French Revolution, clearly. It's this beast that comes up from the abyss. Now, when you look at the principles of the French Revolution and you see that it was about liberty, equality, and fraternity, that actually sounds pretty good, does it not? I mean, we believe in liberty, we believe in equality, we believe in fraternity, so to speak, from a human, on a human level. But, you know, Satan has a way of twisting those values to go against the principles of the word of God. Because for the French, liberty meant do as you will, burn the Bibles in the street, get, a, get rid of the seven-day week, make it a ten-day week. We don't need to follow God. And then equality, we're all on the same playing field, and that sounds pretty good as well. Fraternity, belief in a common cause. But, you know, Satan can use all of those principles and twist them to bring trouble into God's people. And here's what I want to say about this. When Satan was done with the papacy after its 1260 years. Of course, it's going to have its resurrection, but he knew it was going to get its deadly wound at the end of the 1260 years. He brought in principles that he would use till the close of time to wreak havoc on God's people till the second coming. Liberty, equality, and fraternity. Now listen, Satan sees that God has raised up a remnant church through whom God is going to work to prepare people to stand in the day of God. And so Satan, look, he's not going to just sit idly by. He's wroth with a woman. He went to make war with the remnant of her seed. And if you look carefully even today, Satan is trying to use similar principles, or the same principles, if you will, and he's trying to bring them into God's remnant church today to wreak havoc in the church. You know, if we want to have a discussion about any particular issue, let's have a discussion based on what the Bible says. But if we start having a discussion based on social justice, well, this is about equality, this is about liberty, this is about fraternity, then we've, we've twisted things so that rather than saying, what does the Bible say, we're using principles of social justice, and Satan can use that to get us to go directly against the word of God. And so we've got to be very careful that we don't allow these same principles that came up from the beast from the abyss in Revelation 11. Yes, we believe in liberty. Yes, we believe in equality. Yes, we believe in fraternity as long as it's consistent with what the Bible teaches. 
Yes, we believe in the liberty of conscience. That's, conscience. that's the greatness of America. Yes, we believe in equality. That's another greatness in America. Yes, we believe in unity for a common cause and fraternity, so to speak, as long as it's within the framework of Scripture. But if you start to push liberty at the expense of fidelity to the Word of God, how come we can't do this in the church? Shouldn't we be free to do, worship God the way we please? Well, what if God says that we should worship one way and you're saying we should worship another way? The standard should be the word of God. Same thing with equality. Well, why can't I have this position of authority? Why can't I be ordained to such a position? What does the Bible say? That's the importance for God's last day church. So here we see, and by the way as well, when you look at the French Revolution and the Advent Movement, it's interesting. They come prophetically in Revelation chapter 10 and Revelation 11. The second advent movement is described in Revelation chapter 10. The French Revolution is described in Revelation chapter 11. And those two chapters are sandwiched between what two events in the book of Revelation? Do you know? What's Revelation chapter 9? Revelation chapter 9 is the fifth and then the sixth trumpet with the fulfillment of the sixth trumpet on August 11, 1840. And then Revelation 11:15 is the sounding of the seventh trumpet, which by the time you get to verse 19, you see that's the temple of God being opened in heaven and going into the most holy place. That's 1844. So Revelation 10, rise of the second advent movement. Revelation 11, the French Revolution. These two powers, if you will, the power of atheism from for the French Revolution, the second advent movement in Revelation 10, are the two final players in the scene, if you will, that are introduced into the great controversy before the second coming of Jesus. Because the papacy's been around for over a thousand years now. Now the French Revolution comes onto the scene. Now the Second Advent Movement comes on the scene. And when you look at the French Revolution, God can look to the onlooking universe and say, do you have any questions now as to why there needs to be a judgment? See what happens when Satan is in charge? There needs to be a judgment for all the atrocities that the dragon committed through the beast power. But that's not the end of the question, so to speak. God has to have his answer in the great controversy because Satan had his turn, so to speak, to be in charge. He ruled through the papacy for 1,260 years. And so God says, I need to have my opportunity to raise up a special group of people living at the end of time that will be my answer or my demonstration in the great controversy. The French Revolution, they represented a demonstration of the full maturation of the principles of Satan's government at the end of the 1260 years. And what God is saying when you study Revelation chapter 10, and we're going to get into this here, is that he is raising up a special movement, a special group of people that will be his answer in the great controversy that ultimately will be a full maturity or a full maturation of the principles of God's government in contrast to the principles of Satan's government as seen in the French Revolution. And that's why Revelation 10 and Revelation 11 are sandwiched between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. Because when the seventh trumpet sounds, that's the, the signal that the final judgment has begun. And so the final judgment can begin because Satan has shown what he's really all about. And now when the final judgment begins, God has his answer in the great controversy, which is the second advent movement in, and their proclamation and demonstration of the three angels' messages. And that's why I said at the beginning of the presentation, I am thankful to be a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm not ashamed of that. Now, the paradox or the irony of being 
in God's remnant church is that we are the Laodicean church. So before we get too proud about ourselves and say, man, we're, the, we're God's answer in the great controversy, then you go to Revelation chapter 3, and Jesus says, if you don't change, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. You're supposed to be my demonstration of what my character is like to the world, and you think you're so good off that you don't need anything, and you're actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. If you're naked, you don't have the righteousness of Christ. The problem with Adventism today is we read Revelation 3, and we're like, oh yeah, we're the Laodicean church. We're just not on fire enough for God. Maybe if I just do a little bit more witnessing, I'll be okay. That's not what Revelation 3 is teaching. Revelation 3 is teaching us that we're going around basically thinking we're not too bad. At least I'm not like my other, the other people in my church that are drinking a little bit and some of them haven't kicked their smoking habit. They're still kind of coming to church and maybe they're beating their wife or you name it, whatever. You can, any of us can think of someone who's probably worse off spiritually than us. And so because of that, we're like, well, I'm not that bad. And Jesus says that's not how to view yourself. You are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, meaning we need the righteousness of Christ. If we are going to be God's answer in the great controversy, his demonstration of what he can do when he is fully in charge, then we need to get out of our Laodicean naked condition. We're blind so we don't see that we're walking around naked, but that's, that's our problem. So the second Advent movement is God's answer in the great controversy. So I talked about Revelation 10 and 11. They're interlude chapters between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. French Revelation represents the full maturity of Satan's government in Revelation 11. Revelation 10 describes the rise of the second Advent movement. This is God's response to the full maturity of Satan's government. And so now we're going to talk about this spiritual awakening. And I would invite you to take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 10. And we're going to read verses 1 and 2. And here John the Revelator says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth. Now, this mighty angel, I think most of us know this is Jesus Christ. Um, you can see that in Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, a very similar characteristic of Jesus. You see that his right foot is on the sea, his left foot is on the earth. <clears throat> now, when you study Revelation chapter 13, you know that there's the two beasts. The one comes up out of the sea, the other comes up out of the earth. And we've always understood that the the first beast, which represents the papacy, came up out of the populated area of Europe. And the second beast, which represents the United States of America, came up out of the earth. This mighty angel has his right foot upon the sea, his left foot on the earth, and so he, he is covering the whole world, so to speak, the populated area of the old world of Europe and the, the new world of America. And he has a little book open in his hand, and so this mighty angel is announcing that he has a message that is to be given to the old world and to the new world. This is representing a shift in prophetic time, so to speak, that no longer is the message just going to be centered around um, the old world of Europe, that it's also going to be given in the new world of America, that it's a worldwide message. And um, 
I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about the awakening in Europe, and then we'll spend the rest of our time talking about the rise of the Advent movement and its message here in America. So, you know, when we talk about the rise of the Millerite movement in 1844 and, and the message that William Miller brought, we have to remember, and Ellen White talks about this in the book The Great Controversy, that there was a great religious awakening, not just in America, but in the rest of the world. And this is the chapter, A Great Religious Awakening in The Great Controversy, pages 355 to 374. Here on the screen, you see a picture of Joseph Wolfe. He was the son of Jewish parents. He studied for himself, and when he asked his father what the prophecy of Isaiah 53 meant, he was met with such silence he knew he better not ask that question again. But he studied for himself, and he realized that Jesus really was the Messiah. And as he studied more and more, he came to a similar conclusion to William Miller that Jesus would come somewhere in the 1840s. And he was a missionary throughout Europe and the Middle East proclaiming the soon return of Jesus. There were others as well. There was a, um, in Great Controversy, page 362, there was a Tatar priest who believed Jesus would come in 1844. So this wasn't just a William Miller thing. There was Robert Winter in 1842 who was in England preaching the message. There was Lacunza in South America, also known as Rabbi Ben Ezra. That's a picture of Kunza, um, who believed in the soon coming of Jesus. There was Bengal in Germany, Gaussen in Geneva. So what you see from this is that it wasn't just William Miller and the Millerites. There were people all over the world who were spurred on by this mighty angel, Jesus, who came down from heaven to raise up a new movement, to stir the world to an awakening of the message of his soon coming. And this brings us to the awakening in America. The angel had his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the earth. And there's a whole chapter in the Great Controversy entitled An American Reformer, uh, pages 317 to 342. And again, if you've never read these chapters, if you've never read this book, if it's been a long time since you've read this, go by the GYC main booth. You can get this book for $3.50. It's the best money you'll spend while you're here, probably and read these chapters. This is powerful stuff. Notice what William Miller says about his experience. He says, I saw that the Bible did bring to view just such a savior as I needed. He had become a deist. He grew up a Christian. He became a deist. Deist believed that God created the world and he just set it in motion and he didn't interfere or interact in our affairs. But he realized, William Miller realized, wow, there really is a savior that I need. And I was perplexed to find how an uninspired book should develop principles so perfectly adapted to the wants of a fallen world. I was constrained to admit that the scriptures must be a revelation from God. They became my delight, and in Jesus I found a friend. Now that's probably one of the most important statements that Ellen White makes about William Miller. Because, you know, when we talk about William Miller, we're familiar with his teaching of the 2300 days and of saying that Jesus was going to come to cleanse the sanctuary of the earth by fire. But the reality is, is that the reason why William Miller dedicated his life to the preaching of the soon return of Jesus is because he found in Jesus a personal savior and he found in Jesus a friend. Now, if you haven't found in Jesus a friend, it's like 1 Corinthians 13, though I understand all prophecy and all knowledge and all of these things, that you're like a tinkling brass or a clanging cymbal. If you don't know Jesus, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's good that you know truth, but if you don't know Jesus, ultimately it doesn't matter. And so William Miller, 
He found in Jesus a savior, a personal savior. He found in Jesus a friend. And you know what? When he studied the Bible, the Bible was a delight to him. That's how it should be for us, amen? That the Bible should be a delight to us because we're interacting with our best friend Jesus as we read the scripture. That is God's word to us personally. Continuing, the Savior became to me the chiefest among 10,000, and the scriptures which, were, which before were dark and contradictory now became the light to my feet and the lamp to my feet and light to my path. My mind became settled and satisfied. I found the Lord God to be a rock in the midst of the ocean of life. The, the Bible now became my chief study, and I can truly say I searched it with great delight. Now, here's the thing. Before William Miller became converted, before Jesus became his friend, the scriptures were to him dark and contradictory. You know, you can get into all sorts of twisted arguments that get tangled up like a big spaghetti mess with people who don't know Jesus. You can cavil and debate and pick and whatever at the Bible, but if you know Jesus, the Bible makes sense. The Bible is clear, it's straightforward. If you know Jesus, Jesus is speaking to you, and it's not rocket science to figure out most of what the Bible is saying. Yeah, there's a few passages here and there that you just kind of have to file away, and maybe sometime in this life they'll become clear. Ultimately, they will become apparent as we get to heaven. Now, continuing, I found the half was never told me. I wondered why I had not seen its beauty and glory before and marveled that I could have ever rejected it. I found everything revealed that my heart could desire and a remedy for every disease of the soul. I lost all taste for other reading and applied my heart to get wisdom from God. So that's, and that's from William Miller's memoirs, but Ellen White quotes it in Great Controversy, page 319. Now, that's William Miller's personal experience. Now we're going to see the prophecy that really helped him to understand what was so important. Now notice this. With intense interest, he studied the books of Daniel and the Revelation, employing the same principles of interpretation as in the other scriptures, and found to his great joy that the prophetic symbols could be understood. And I would say this. If more of God's people would study Daniel and Revelation with intense interest today, there would be a great revival among God's people. Because here's the thing, the books of Daniel and Revelation are not really about beasts and horns. Beasts and horns are there, but they were about a revelation of Jesus Christ, especially when you get to the book of Revelation. And so William Miller, as he's studying the Bible, he's coming to a greater understanding of who Jesus is. Continuing, he saw that the prophecies so far as they had been fulfilled had been fulfilled literally, that all the various figures, metaphors, parables, similitudes, etc., were either explained in their immediate connection or the terms in which they were expressed were defined in other scriptures and when thus explained were to be literally understood. And then this is um, Great Controversy, page 324. The prophecy which seemed most clearly to reveal the time of the second advent was that of Daniel 8, 14. Into 2,300 days then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And you can read on down through the quote that he saw that the period extended far past the Jewish dispensation. So it clearly couldn't refer to the Jewish temple or sanctuary in Jerusalem. He accepted the generally received view that in the Christian age the earth is the sanctuary. And he therefore understood that the cleansing of the sanctuary foretold in Daniel 8, 14 was the purification of the earth by fire. So he thought that because if the sanctuary was the earth, if the sanctuary was going to be cleansed, it would be cleansed by fire and Jesus would come. That was where he made his mistake. Now this is an important statement here. Great Controversy, page 351. 
The experience of the disciples who preached the gospel of the kingdom at the first advent of Christ had its counterpart in the experience of those who proclaimed the message of his second advent. As the disciples went out preaching, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and that's Mark 1, 14 and 15. So Miller and his associates proclaimed that the longest and last prophetic period brought to view in the Bible was about to expire, that the judgment was at hand, and the everlasting kingdom was to be ushered in. So Miller and his associates were proclaiming that the longest and last prophetic period were about to expire. Now, do you know what the longest and last prophetic period is? Let's look. It's continuing on. The preaching of the disciples in regard to time was based on the 70 weeks of Daniel 9. The message given by Miller and his associates announced the termination of the 2300 days of Daniel 8:14, of which the 70 weeks form a part. The preaching of each was based upon the fulfillment of a different portion of the great or the same great prophetic period. Now, why do I mention this? Because there's some people out there today who claim that there's a prophecy called the 2520 that God's people need to accept in order to receive the seal of God. And if you don't accept the 2520, you're not going to receive the seal and so on. And they have all sorts of artful um, things that they say. And they even look at this quote and say, no, when she talks about the 70 weeks and the 2300 days, those were just different portions of the 2520. And my question to them is like, well, then how come she didn't mention the 2520 specifically? If the 70 weeks and the 2300 days were different portions of the great prophetic period of the 2520, then why isn't that mentioned explicitly? Ellen White wouldn't have done such a thing. It's very clear when you read the context that the longest and last prophetic period of Bible prophecy is the 2300 days. So those of you who are inclined to go off into these various strange teachings that have come into the church about the 2520 being a real prophecy, beware. Because guess what? The people who are teaching this are basically saying that Millerite history is going to repeat itself to the very letter, and just as the mainline churches reject William Miller and became part of Babylon just before 1844, Adventists who reject the teaching of the 2520 will become part of Babylon. It's a bunch of nonsense, so don't waste your time with that. Just stick with the clear, straightforward teachings of the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, and you'll save yourself so much trouble. Let's continue. So... The 2300-day prophecy is the key prophecy that was the engine to the vehicle, so to speak, for the Advent movement. But the Advent movement took off around 1840. In the year 1840, William Miller finally made it to the big city, so to speak. From 1831 to 1840, William Miller had been preaching in small churches. He just took speaking invitations in the order that he received them. He was not strategic about what he was doing. And yet, here he's preaching that Jesus is going to come about the year 1843. And by 1840, the message hasn't really yet taken off. He finally got an invitation to a big church in Boston, Massachusetts. Joshua Himes was the pastor of the Chardon Street Chapel. And when he heard William Miller's message, it was so gripping to him that he came up to William Miller after the sermon and he said, do you really believe what you are preaching? And William Miller said, of course I do. Why would I have dedicated the last nine years of my life to this? And, William, and then Joshua Heim said, well, we've got to do what we can to get this message to the people much more effectively. William Miller said, I'm only one person. I can only do so much. At this point, Joshua Himes effectively became the general manager of the Millerite movement. William Miller was a great preacher, but he wasn't necessarily a good administrator. He got a good administrator in Joshua Himes to help the movement go forward the way it needed to. And so 
So Joshua Himes got Millerite papers in New York, Boston, and Philadelphia. And by the year 1844, the Millerite movement was covered on the front pages of the newspaper, not necessarily positively, but it was on the front pages with the 1844 presidential election. We have a little ways to go as Seventh-day Adventists to get our message to the world. But that's how powerful and how effective the Millerite movement was and how the Spirit of God was leading that movement during that time. Now, there was another very important thing that happened at this very time. There was a specific fulfillment of prophecy seen in Revelation 9.15, which describes the fall of the Ottoman Empire on August 11, 1840. Now, this time prophecy describes how the Ottomans would have control or power for one hour, one day, one month, and one year. Now, when you do the calculation of that prophecy, that's 391 years and 15 days, literally speaking. And this sets the time frame for Revelation chapter 10 because at the end of Revelation chapter 9, the Ottoman Empire falls on August 11, 1840. And as it falls, there's a Millerite preacher, Josiah Litch, who publishes a study, and he's predicting that the Ottoman Empire is going to fall about the year 1840. He's using the principles of historicism as set forth by William Miller. But about two weeks before, Josiah Litch predicts that the Ottoman Empire will fall on the very day of August 11, 1840. Now that's pretty amazing, huh? So before it even happens, he's saying, based on our principles of prophetic interpretation, the Ottoman Empire is going to come down on August 11, 1840. Well, you know what? LMY has something to say about this. In the year 1840, another remarkable fulfillment of prophecy excited widespread interest. Right there, Ellen White calls it a remarkable fulfillment of prophecy. Two years before, Josiah Litch, one of the leading ministers preaching the Second Advent, published an exposition of Revelation 9 predicting the fall of the Ottoman Empire. According to his calculations, this power was to be overthrown in 1840, sometime in the month of August, and only a few days previous to its accomplishment, he wrote, allowing the first period, and I'm going to skip a little bit ahead, he says that it will fall on the 11th of August, 1840, when the Ottoman power in Constantinople may be expected to be broken, and this, I believe, will be found to be the case. This is Great Controversy 334. He wrote this on August 1, 1840, just 10 days. It was published 10 days before. Notice what Ellen White says, Great Controversy 335 now. At the very time specified, Turkey, through her ambassadors, accepted the protection of the allied powers of Europe and thus placed herself under the control of Christian nations. The event exactly fulfilled the prediction. When it became known, multitudes were convinced of the correctness of the principles of prophetic interpretation adopted by Miller and his associates, and a wonderful impetus was given to the Advent movement. Men of learning and position united with Miller, both in preaching and in publishing his views, and from 1840 to 1844, the work rapidly extended. So here's the thing. When the Ottoman Empire falls on August 11, 1840, people come to the conclusion, wow, if they could get the very day of the fall of the Ottoman Empire, based on their 
understanding of the fifth and the sixth trumpets, then they must know what they're talking about, about the 2300-day prophecy of Daniel 8.14. And so this gave great power to the Advent movement, and it coincided at the very time of Jesus the mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, a rainbow upon his head, his face as it were the sun, his feet as pillars of fire, and he has a little book open in his hand because he's coming down from heaven to raise up a new movement. And so this Millerite movement, which, which takes off with great power, is being raised up by the power of the mighty angel, Jesus Christ himself. Aren't you excited to know that Jesus himself raised up our movement? We're not just another movement. We're not just another religious denomination uh, on the landscape of multitudes of religious denominations. As I said at the beginning of our presentation, we are God's answer in the great controversy that he is raising up to be an answer, a demonstration of the principles of his government to the world. Now I'm just going to make a side point here. Recent books and individuals have discarded the prophecy of Revelation 9.15. They teach that it's a specific hour of prophecy, not 391 years and 15 days. Um, but yet, yeah, Ellen White calls it a remarkable fulfillment of prophecy, and she says the event exactly fulfilled the prediction. Now, here's the thing. They even say, look, after 1844, Josiah Litch looked back at it, and he's like, nah, that whole Ottoman thing, that didn't make any sense. What I said really doesn't add up. But you know what Josiah Litch also did? He also threw out the 2300 days and he said, yeah, October 22 wasn't really what it was. So what are we going to do? So we're going to say, oh yeah, because Josiah Litch threw out August 11, we're justified in doing so, but we'll keep the 2300 days. They either stand together or they fall together. You can't have one without the other. And, you know, to say that Ellen White was just saying, oh, well, that gave encouragement to the Millerites at that time, but that's not really a fulfillment of prophecy. She says it's a remarkable fulfillment of prophecy and that the event exactly fulfilled the prediction. So either she's wrong or she's right. Okay. I want to spend a little bit of time in the last 20 minutes that we have here going through... Because, I mean, we're, we're talking about the Great Controversy here, and I've shown you from the book, The Great Controversy, the rise of the Second Advent Movement and of the Millerite Movement and of the fulfillment of prophecy. And this coincides perfectly, and as we've talked about, the French Revolution, French Revolution and Revelation chapter 11, this coincides perfectly as well with the rise of the Second Advent Movement in Revelation chapter 10. So let's look at this again. This mighty angel Jesus, he comes down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, a rainbow was upon his head. His face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. Jesus is coming down from heaven to raise up a new movement. Now here's the amazing thing. When you look at how this mighty angel is described, how he's clothed, what's on his head, what his face looks like, what his feet look like. This tells you exactly what this angel is set out to do. Let's look first here. So this angel comes down from heaven. He's Jesus Christ. You can see the corresponding verses in Revelation 1, verses 13 through 15. Now, the very first description with the mighty angel is the cloud. Revelation chapter 10, verse 1, it says that this angel is clothed with a cloud. Where else in scripture is Jesus Christ described as being clothed with a cloud? 
Yeah, he comes with a cloud of angels, but in Exodus 13, let's go there, Exodus 13, 21 and 22, and Leviticus 16, 2, you see that Jesus was clothed with a cloud in the earthly sanctuary above the most holy place. Exodus 13, 21 and 22, it says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So here you clearly see the Lord, or the pre-incarnate Christ, was in this pillar of cloud leading the children of Israel from Egypt to Canaan. And Leviticus 16, 2 shows us exactly where this cloud was. And the Lord the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat. This is the most holy place, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Here's what we see right off the top here. Jesus is clothed with a cloud as the mighty angel in Revelation chapter 10, just as he was clothed with a cloud above the most holy place of the earthly sanctuary because he is making it clear in 1840 as the fulfillment of prophecy takes place in Revelation 9.15, the Ottoman Empire falls, and he's coming down in 1840 to raise up a new movement. He is announcing that as he is clothed with a cloud, he is here to lead a new movement from spiritual Egypt to spiritual Canaan. This is the second advent movement. And just as he led the earthly Israelites through the wilderness to the earthly Canaan through an understanding of the sanctuary message, he is doing the same thing with his last day advent movement. He's clothed with a cloud. He is leading Adventism the second advent movement to an understanding of the sanctuary message. Not only that, it says that a rainbow was upon his head. Genesis 9 verses 9 through 17 shows us that the rainbow was a symbol of the covenant between God and Noah. Now that covenant was that God would specifically not destroy the earth again by flood. But in Revelation chapter 4 verse 3, we also see that a rainbow is around the throne of God. And so what Jesus is showing is that he has a cloud. He's clothed with a cloud. A rainbow is upon his head because he's showing us that he is here to renew the covenant with his people from his throne. And this covenant will be related to what he is doing in the sanctuary, in the most holy place. And this covenant, we find, is the new covenant, which is God's law in our heart and mind, and the blotting out of sin, which takes place at the end of the Day of Atonement. Hebrews 8, verses 10 through 13, and Hebrews 10, 16, and 17 teaches that. And Hebrews 9, verses 3 and 4 shows us that the Ark of the Covenant was in the most holy place, and it contained the tables of the covenant. And this demonstrates that Jesus was coming to renew the Sabbath commandment, which we are called to remember. And so, these are some key things that we see. Revelation chapter 10, verse 7. By the time you get down to Revelation chapter 10, verse 7, um, as Jesus is raising up this new movement, at, and you read, it says, In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. When does the seventh trumpet begin to sound? Revelation 11, 15 through 19 shows us that when it sounds, the temple of God is open in heaven, and you see in his temple the ark of his testament. That's the most holy place. 
you see that his face shown as it were the sun. Malachi 4 verse 2 shows us that Jesus is the son of righteousness. And so he was raising up a movement to lead them to the righteousness of Christ. And the Lord has tried to bring that message to this church. He has brought it through his messengers to this church. That message came through the, the life of Ellen White and her writings, of course. And he raised up messengers in 1888, Jones and Wagner, who brought the message to the church. And Ellen White says a manuscript... 15, 1888, that this message received in its fullness will lighten the earth with its glory because the righteousness of Christ will lighten up the world. It will be a demonstration of his character. So Christ is raising up a movement to be a demonstration of his righteousness. And again, the pillars of fire, that was um, his feet as pillars of fire. He was a pillar of fire by night. So he's leading a new movement to heaven through the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary. So when you see all of that, Revelation chapter 10, verse 1, you see the description. Then when you see that there's a little book open in the hand of the mighty angel, what do you think this little book would be talking about? Don't you think this little book would be talking about Jesus moving into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary? Because he's clothed with a cloud. The cloud was above the most holy place. A rainbow is upon his head. That's by the throne of God, and he's going to renew the covenant. His face shown as it were the sun. That's the righteousness of Christ. His feet as pillars of fire. This, the angel is announcing that he is making a movement into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary to raise up a people that will follow him all the way into the most holy place. And the book of scripture that had been sealed but now is open in this time period of earth's history describes the very thing that Jesus is showing that he's setting forth to do. Daniel 8:14, and he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now here's the thing. We say, yeah, the book of Daniel was sealed till the time of the end, but look, you didn't have to wait till 1798 to figure out that the head of gold in Daniel 2 was Babylon. And if you studied carefully, you'd figure out that the little horn was the papacy. Martin Luther came to that conclusion in the 1500s. The, the part of the book of Daniel that was sealed was the portion of the vision of the 2300 days that was sealed till the time of the end. And so Jesus is coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, just as he was over the most holy place of the earthly sanctuary. A rainbow is upon his head from the throne of God. His face shone as it were the sun. And he's moving in to the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary to raise up a prophetic movement that will be a demonstration of his character to the world. And the fact that Christ's right foot was upon the sea, his left foot was on the earth, shows that this is a worldwide message. Now I'm going to skip through um, a couple of sections here, but when we get to Revelation chapter 10 verses 5 through 7, this is what we see. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things which are therein that there should be time no longer. Now notice this angel, this mighty angel who is Jesus lifts up his hand to heaven and it says he swears by him who lives forever and ever. Now you realize that in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13 it says when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. 
So here the mighty angel swears by him that liveth forever and ever. Jesus, who is God, swears by himself. And he's saying, I am the creator. And he's saying that there should be time no longer. This is connected to the first angel's message. It's connected to the message that the hour of God's judgment has come. And listen, Jesus is swearing by an oath. If Jesus is swearing by an oath, is this not important? And he's swearing by an oath by the fact that he is the creator of all things. Listen, the Seventh-day Adventist church can never give up its belief in creation, as stated in Scripture. That is a, de that is a defining element of who Jesus is. Jesus swore by himself. And notice, he said, what was he swearing? What was the announcement? He said that there should be time no longer. What time is he speaking about here? Well, what's been unsealed? The prophecy of the 2300 days. That's been unsealed. And that is announcing that after the 2,300 days, there is no more prophetic time. So, you know, there's these people out there that say, oh, you know what? We can reinterpret the 1260, the 1290, and the 1335 into literal days at the end of time. You know what? Jesus swore by an oath that after 1844, there is no more prophetic time. So if you're setting up literal time prophecies from Daniel chapter 12, you're going against an oath that Christ swore by. So be careful. I wouldn't want to go against Christ if I were you. Anyway. Verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Here we see that the mystery of God, what is the mystery of God? Of course, Colossians 1.27 makes it very clear that to whom God would make known what is the mystery of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Notice, it's not Christ covering you, Christ outside of you, Christ for you, Christ in place of you. No, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. This represents a... a Christ coming into the lives of his people so that he can be a demonstration of his character through us. It's Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth where? In me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. That's the faith of Jesus. That's the third angel's message. And so the mystery of God being finished is the third angel's message that's going to be finished in the lives of Adventism, the patience of the saints, the commandments of God, and the faith of Jesus. And of course, they went through the great disappointment. They, the message was sweet in their mouth, bitter in their belly. But they're commanded in Revelation chapter 10, verse 11, to prophesy again, which is the three angels' messages to be given to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. You know, Ellen White tells us that there is no other work of so great importance as the proclamation of the three angels' messages. We're, we are al to allow nothing else to absorb our attention. This is the message that the mighty angel came down from heaven to give to us, his people, so that we could prophesy again to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Now is not the time in earth's history to become ashamed of the three angels' messages. And you know what, the first angel's message is fairly popular because it's the everlasting gospel, but there is the second angel's message. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And Babylon will remain fallen until Jesus comes and will be destroyed. We are not to join Babylon. We are to call people to come out. 
Ellen White says, of all the great religious movements since the days of the apostles, none have been more free from human imperfection and the wiles of Satan than was that of the autumn of 1844. Even now, after the lapse of many years, all who shared in that movement and who have stood firm upon the platform of truth still feel the holy influence of that blessed work and bear witness that it was of God. That's Great Controversy 401. Ellen White says some more here. The angel who unites in the proclamation of the third angel's message is to lighten the whole earth with his glory. That's the loud cry, my friends. A work of worldwide extent and unwanted power is here foretold. The Advent movement of 1840 to 44 was a glorious manifestation of the power of God. The first angel's message was carried to every missionary station in the world. And in some countries, there was the greatest religious interest which has been witnessed in any land since the Reformation of the 16th century. But notice this. But these are to be exceeded by the mighty movement under the last warning of the third angel. That's great kind of verse 611. That means that what we saw with the power of the Millerite movement, if we have the privilege to be part of the mighty movement under the last warning of the third angel, it's going to exceed anything the world has ever seen. Do you want to be part of that? What is Adventism's purpose today? It's for the mystery of God to be finished while the seventh trumpet is sounding, which is Christ in you, his character being perfectly reproduced in our lives as Christ does his work in the most holy place. This represents the cleansing of the sanctuary. As our characters are cleansed of sin, the sanctuary in heaven above is also cleansed of sin. Notice the statement from Review and Herald, April 21, 1891, and this brings it all together. The latter rain is to fall upon the people of God. A mighty angel is to come down from heaven, and the whole earth is to be lighted with his glory. So this is Revelation 18.1. A mighty angel comes down from heaven, having great power. The earth is lightened with his glory. Now notice what she says. Are we ready to take part in the glorious work of the third angel? Are our vessels ready to receive the heavenly dew? Have we defilement and sin in the heart? If so, let us cleanse the soul temple. Notice this relates to the cleansing of the sanctuary. And prepare for the showers of the latter rain. The refreshing from the presence of the Lord will never come to hearts filled with impurity. May God help us to die to self. That's Galatians 2.20, being crucified with Christ. May God help us to die to self that Christ, the hope of glory, may be formed within. That's the mystery of God. Christ, the hope of glory, may be formed within. When Christ, the hope of glory, is formed within, the soul temple will be cleansed so that the sanctuary in heaven will be cleansed, and then the latter rain will fall upon the people of God, and a mighty angel will come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth will be lightened with its glory. So here's what I see. Jesus is the mighty angel who came down from heaven to raise up the second advent movement so that he could have a movement that would be a demonstration of his character to the world, who would be a revelation of himself. Jesus started the work of the advent movement when he came down from heaven around the time period of 1840 to raise up this movement that we are a part of. But you know what? Jesus has a greater plan for the for the Advent movement than for just him to do the work. You see, when the mystery of God is finished and Christ is formed within in the lives of Adventism, Adventism is going to be a worldwide demonstration of Jesus. 
And so Revelation 10 describes the rise of the second advent movement, but Revelation 18 describes the culmination or the fulfillment of the mystery of God being finished. Because when the mystery of God is finished and Christ is formed within, we will have the character of Jesus. And when we have his character, he will then give us his power so that the earth can be lightened with his glory or his character. And you know what the problem with Adventists today so many times is we want his power, but we don't want his character. We say, give us your spirit, Lord, but we don't want your character. You can't have it both ways. If we're going to have the power of the Holy Spirit in latter rain proportions in our lives, we need his character. We need the cleansing of sin from our lives, the selfishness, the secret sins that nobody sees when nobody else is watching. Sure, we can all look good when we show up to church. Oh, GYC, hey, good to see you. What kind of ministry are you doing these days? Yeah, I'm doing, yeah. And we can all look all so holy and sanctimonious and oh, look at the good things I'm doing. But we know what we are like when no one else is looking. And the question is, for William Miller, Jesus was the chiefest among 10,000. Is Jesus that to you? Because if Jesus is really the chiefest among 10,000 to you, all of those secret sins and, you know, selfishness and pride and whatever else may be out there, those things will fade away if you keep your eyes on Jesus. And if we can get a whole movement of people to keep our eyes on Jesus, Jesus on the cross, Jesus in the sanctuary, then Christ will be formed within and so I just want to challenge you today as we wrap up this hour. Christ has raised up this movement to be his demonstration in the great controversy of what he can do when he is in charge. Satan's already had his chance. God is working to develop that group within Adventism today. And by his grace and through his power, I believe that day is not far off when that work will be finished. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much that you have given us the privilege to be part of a movement that you are working upon to develop your character in our lives. We ask for forgiveness for where we've fallen short. We're thankful that you're a merciful Savior that forgives us when we sin. But we thank you that you give us the power that we can overcome, that we can be like Jesus, and that he can live out his life through us. And may we be part of that special group of people who goes forth to the world to give a message to Lighten the earth with your glory before you come back. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short break, and then Brother Hyman is going to continue talking about the scriptures as a safeguard and the snares of Satan. You're going to want to come back for that. Um, that will be our last presentation for today. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.